So glad that you're here. And I want to tell you a story. Maybe you're familiar with the name Louis Zamperini. He was, uh, there was a movie made about him. But Louis Zamperini would have been a guy who from the onset of his life would have reason to have a heart that was just cold towards people. And you, you know what it's like when you're around somebody who, if you could see the sign that was outside of their life, it would say closed for business, right? Louis, when he grew up, he tells the story that at age five, he was a chain smoker, that he drank pretty heavily at age seven. I don't recommend that. He tells the story about the fact that as a boy, that he was fighting with everybody in his life. In fact, the teacher that was tough on him in school, he let the air out of her tires. The the police officer that had the, the, the ability to nag him in his life, he threw tomatoes at him. All these stories of him being a character. But later on in his life, he was actually a tremendously gifted athlete. And he would go to the Berlin Olympics representing the United States. And he was so excited to compete, but he lost. And after he lost, he ended up signing up to be a part of the American war effort in World War II. And Louis, as he tells the story himself, would have been a man who went through crisis after crisis after crisis. The, the image of him being a fighter, he was actually a boxer. And, and when he would enlist in the army, but he flew on a bombardier aircraft as a, a bombardier, he was on a mission where they were looking, doing a search and rescue mission, and his plane would crash. And only three of the 10 individuals with him in that plane that day would survive. And ultimately, they found themselves on two rafts and what we're told is that they would set a record for the length of time being spent on a little raft floating some 2,000 miles, 47 days. One of the fellow passengers on that plane would end up dying and they did a sea burial. The story's terrible of how they survived and the crisis with it. And you, you hear the story and there's just a part of you that your heart breaks for the guy. But then he ended up spending, they made it, to an island in Japan where they ultimately would, he would spend two years in concentration POW camps that he ultimately would suffer at the hands of guards. And they were terrible. The way he describes the detail of what he had to go through, daily beating, daily being torn down to, for who was, it was malicious and nasty and ugly. And the movie portrays this horrifically. But he would say of all of the things that he experienced, one of the lowest parts of his life would have happened within the next five years after the war was over. When he came back, he met his bride, married her within a couple of months, and then he entered into a deep-rooted alcoholism that, that really, in his own words, the biggest battle that he'd ever fight in his life. That he was ready to get divorced, he was ready to give up on everything. And in Hollywood, California, he was invited by somebody who lived in the same apartment that he lived in to go to a Billy Graham crusade. And, and his answer to that in his own words is like, he said, I have no interest in going to this. And his wife wasn't a believer at the time, but she encouraged him to go and they went together. And he said, I hated it because it felt like God was speaking directly to me at that time. And at the altar call time, Louis um, just felt this this pushing in his life, and he ended up not going forward. The next day, his wife asked if they were going to go back. He said, I will go back as long as we can leave right before they do the altar call. And ultimately, he ended up going forward and giving his life to Christ. Now, what's so interesting about his story is that at that moment, his life changed for the rest of his life. And he just died five years ago. But what we know about his story from there on 
is that, that he ended up wrestling with what it meant to be forgiven. Before the moment of becoming a Christ follower, he said his mind every day was, was constantly thinking about how he could repay evil for evil, how he could go back to Japan someday, find those guards, and return the favor to them, how he could be vengeful for what they did to him. In fact, he went back five years after he was set free, and those guards, many of which were in a prison there in Japan, similar to the one that he was in. And he says that when he went there on that day, he wasn't sure how he was going to respond and they have a video footage of this. It's amazing. He's shaking and he ultimately embraces these men in tears because he'd just forgiven them. Like there was this, this thing that happened inside of him. And you know, at his funeral, there were several individuals that would say about Louis that he was the warmest person that they knew in their life. That he was a warm person. If, if there was a sign on the outside of his life, it would say, welcome for business, Right? And there's a component of that when I studied the Apostle Paul as we've been going through the book of Colossians that you look at the Apostle Paul and here is a guy who invested his life in people, loving people, caring for people, some of which were the very people who picked up a stone to literally kill him with it. And yet he somehow remained soft. And today, as we study God's word together, we're going to see these 10 people that he mentions at the end of his, his message the, to the church in Colossae, where he's going to name them by name. And he's going to say these, these wonderful terms about people, my, my loving brother, my blessed friend. Like he's going to describe these people by name, 10 of them. And he's going to encourage us to understand how precious relationships are for us. We understand biblically that we're told to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor. What's it say? As yourself. That you and I were created to be people in relationship. But before we dive into this message, I have a question for you. So, so in Louis' case and the Apostle Paul's case, the sign that you would expect was somebody who went through so much would be that their hearts are calloused, Right? It would be that they're so hard-hearted that they say, there's no way that I'm going to let anybody else in my life to hurt me. Instead, though, there was a supernatural thing that happened in them that they were open for business, right? That they were people who still radiated hope, that encouraged one another, that, that chose to, to allow people into the recesses of their lives such, in such a way that the way the Apostle Paul's going to word it today, he's going to call these people faithful minister, fellow servant, brothers, beloved brothers, that they, they were open for business. So if we could do an EKG on the status of your heart today, what is the status of your heart right now? Is it hard? Is it, is it that you say, I'm closed off? I don't need any more. I don't want what you're selling. No solicitation. I'm not welcome. You're not welcome. Or are you a person who understands the precious value of relationships in your life? And that I've chosen to follow the model that's been given to us first of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we say that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. But the model that I think is the equation for us to be not only rooted in truth, but for us to be able to thrive. The question for you today is what is the status of your heart? How open am I to relationships? Now I'm guessing for some of you, and I'm married to an introvert. How many of you are introverts here? It's okay to raise your hand. All right, we won't be mean to you introverts. Right? So that surprises me. It's interesting. So I'm married to an introvert. I'm an extrovert. Um, this message is not about how 
you get encouraged or energized being around people. I, I don't know if the Apostle Paul was an introvert or an extrovert. Often we attribute people who are outgoing as people are people who value relationships or have lots of relationships that are healthy around them as people who are extroverts or introverts. I, I want to push that aside. Today, I want to say, however God wired you, that he desires for you to be someone who thrives in the midst of healthy relationships. And we can, we can experience them, but they require deliberate effort. And that's really the essence of the message this morning. You and I can build healthy relationships, but they require deliberate effort. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the end of the book of Colossians. It's been a delightful study together with you. I've enjoyed it so much. The, the last words that the Apostle Paul is going to say in verse 18 is to remember his chains, to remember him, to pray for him, to um, not forget what he's going through. But here, we're going to look together at a section of scripture that some might discard as being unhelpful, but I want you to see in the context how amazing it is to see Paul's value that he placed on relationships. In these last 11 verses, there's going to be 10 different people who are named by name, many of which that he calls precious to him in his life. And I want us to catch in this message that, that you and I ought to be people who are intentional about relationships, about building healthy relationships in our life. And Paul, at this stage in his life, models that beautifully. Turn with me to Colossians 4. We're going to pick up in verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose— that you may know how we are and that we may, he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. So, so the message that we see Paul saying is, he, he, if, you have your, if you have a pen and you mark up your Bible, just underline all the ways he describes his companions. And he keeps going to the end of the book. It, he describes them as faithful minister, beloved brother, fellow servant. That, that there, there's, a, there's a sense of this, that they're precious to him. And I want to encourage us this morning that that as we look at building healthy relationships, that they require deliberate effort. I want to give a few ways that we can do that. The first is healthy relationships are a result of choosing to make relationships a priority. Uh, my wife and I at Grace would teach a class called Building Healthy Relationships. A lot of fun. I really enjoy the concept because I think most people really want healthy relationships in their life. And one of the, in one of the classes, I had a, a woman uh, raise her hand and share her story a bit. And she just said, for her in her life, the way that she prioritized relationships is to, to really take them seriously, to make space for them. And she talked about a personal vacation that she was on, that she flew home early because she'd been invited to be a part of a 50th anniversary celebration. And she, she said in her life, prioritizing things that, that are the people that are most meaningful in her life have been the way of life for her. It's how she's made these decisions. And and ultimately, it, it showed me, as she described it, that she, she knew something that, was, something that was known by the Apostle Paul. And that is that we ought to be people 
who prioritize relationships in such a way that we know them, that they know us, that there's a, a, a commitment, a connection with them. You know, in the book of Acts, there are a hundred people named uh, different Christians that are directly associated with the Apostle Paul. He named 16 different friends in the book of Romans chapter 16 alone, just that chapter. In these verses we've already mentioned, there's 10 different acquaintances that are named here by name. The context here is that these acquaintances are carrying the letter that we've been reading, reading the book of Colossians. And, and there's a component of this that they're, they're messengers alongside of the Apostle Paul. They're co-workers. They're individuals that are co-laboring with him. The first one that shows up in the text is Tychicus. That's a weird name. But Tychicus is a man who is mentioned in the New Testament five different times. And in every context that he's mentioned in, he is that guy that is behind the scenes that's always alongside of the Apostle Paul. So when he talks about his shipwrecks and being beat down, when he talks about all these, that guy was with him every time. And what's interesting to me is all of those things that could have been said about the Apostle Paul, that this guy was right there beside him. I um, received a scholarship in, in college, and I had the privilege of working with some of the guys in that scholarship context that were part of the Billy Graham Association. And there's one man named Irv who would tell his story very humbly that when it was Leighton Ford and Billy Graham traveling the world with Youth for Christ and with um, with their mission to do the, um, the different missions around the world, that he was one of the guys that went with them to help carry their suitcases, basically. He, he helped to make sure that they honored the commitments that they made. He, he was a co-laborer, but nobody knows this guy's name. And, and in some ways, Tychicus would have been one of those men who got to be a part of what God was doing, but he did it from a distance. That he did it as a man who wasn't upfront, but he was faithful. He was loyal. And it's such a gift. Warren Wearsby says, Tychicus teaches us that the greatest ability in the world is dependability. He was a behind the scenes guy. In this context, we, we have the, the truth of God's word, partially because he was faithful to the task that God gave him. I think that often we get this hierarchy of who's important and, and how valuable they are. And here, a man like him is an individual who God chose to use in a beautiful way, but from a distance that he used him behind the scenes. But he's named five times in the New Testament as being a man who's faithful. So, so for you and I, when it comes to relationships, I believe that they're a result of choosing to prioritize relationships. Uh, in our context today, if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, we accept that our culture is deeply lonely, right? We accept that there are people, none of you would confess to be lonely, but what we would accept is that in our culture, we recognize that there's kind of a lonely epidemic that surrounds us. Some of the statistics are amazing. And um, one, Philip Zimbardo says this, I know of no more potent killer than isolation. There's no more destructive influence on physical and mental health than the isolation of you from me and of us from them. It's an interesting phrase. In The Economist, there's a, an interesting article they read that talks about right about 50% of Americans and a little bit higher in Britain feel that no one knows them well. They feel alone. They feel left out. This is kind of depressing, isn't it? There's a, there's a component that they say this about. This is all around the world. 65% of Britons consider their television or a pet their main source of company. In Japan, there's more than a half million people under 40 who haven't left their house or interacted with anyone for the last six months. It's a 
It's a depressing statistic, isn't it? When I was in seminary, I had, um, when I lived on campus, we had a meal plan. They, a great place to eat, breakfast, lunch, dinner. And uh, to live on campus, you had to have that meal plan. And there were still guys, especially one in particular, who was training to be a pastor, who would eat his meals in, um, in his dorm room, and he'd make his meals, ramen meals, out of the sink in our kind of shared bathroom. So you understand, he just didn't want to be around people, right? Uh, he, he, his desire to, can, can, do you want that guy to be your pastor? Somebody, can you imagine? But there's a component of this that, that I think that that's inside of every one of us, that that there's this sense of, I'm going to just do things, I'm going to have it my way, I'm going to isolate myself from, from this, is, this is a bad illustration, but I'm going to do it anyways. Chuck Swindoll, I heard this when I was a kid growing up. Chuck, Chuck Swindoll said that there was a woman who'd, who had lost her husband after 40 years, and so she went to the pet shop to see if she could replace her husband. That doesn't work out very well. So, so she tried a cat, tried a dog, uh, even a snake. None of those worked. And so the, the owner of the pet shop said that uh, she needed a parrot so she could have a conversation with him. So she buys this parrot, gets a big, beautiful cage for him, and um, the first week that she has him, he doesn't say anything. So she goes back to the pet owner, and she complains. The, the bird doesn't talk. He says, oh, oh, that's okay. What, what, what it needs is a ladder for exercise. So he gets the ladder, doesn't work. So then comes back, and then what they need is a swing. No, it doesn't work. Okay, what, what it needs is a, a mirror. This is week three. It needs a mirror because then it'll feel at home. And finally, the bird dies, and she goes back to the pet owner, and, and she says the, the bird's last words were, don't they have any food at the pet shop? <laughs> it's a bad joke, all right? Forgive me. So some of you are asleep. You just woke back up. It's bad. If, if we know scientifically that we need people, it's important for us to understand the way that the Apostle Paul talks about this is that he talks about this by showing us the evidence of meaningful relationships in his life. He's got 10 right here. That he shows us that this was a priority for him. We know that he was busy, right? We know that he had responsibility, but we also know that he was a man who chose to make people a priority in his life. For, for some of us, the question of how do we allow people... I, I had a wonderful pastor mentor friend. He said... He said that, that people, when it comes to their, their family, he said people are, are, um, are, are pastime. That's the way he described it. I thought that was beautiful. Yeah. He's, he's saying, I, I love people enough that they're the most important thing that we invest our time in. And I think it's helpful for us to accept that healthy relationships are built on truth. They're built on speaking truth and love. Paul spoke well of others using affectionate, specific terms, naming names. If you look at the text with me, he uses these phrases, beloved, brother, faithful servant. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. Those are all in verse 14. And, and we know this about Luke in, in particular, that he's a much-loved Christian. We know that he uh, wrote one of the Gospels, an amazing, amazing gift to that group of people. And the way Paul describes it, just, he's saying it. He, he sees it. He observes it. He, he knows that this is true, and he's going to describe it. You know, it's essential for me to notice when I study the way that the Apostle Paul described his acquaintances is that he doesn't always say the same thing about everybody. That he's specific. He names people by name and he affirms them distinctly and individually. And, and so when we see Paul's ability to speak truth, that it wasn't 
an empty flattery, but instead that he chose to name individuals by name. You've probably heard the quote from Dale Carnegie. He puts it well when he says, remember that a person's name is to that person the sweetest and most important sound in any language. The Apostle Paul wasn't afraid to name names, that he, he spoke well of people. He was not afraid as well to speak truth. In verse 17, where we hear the name of, um, or he talks about to Acrippus, um, who was probably the pastor of the church, the interim head pastor of the church in Colossae. And he says this statement to him in verse 17. He says, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Now, I don't know if Acrippus, if he had heard through the grapevine that this guy was struggling in his role. We don't know if it was like what he does with Timothy when he says, Timothy, God didn't give you a spirit of timidity, but he's given you a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. We don't know if this message was a confrontational one or if it was just, hey, keep it up, buddy. You're doing good. Keep it up. But what we know is that he was willing to say it. And other times in the New Testament, we see him saying things pretty bluntly. After John Mark, on the first missionary journey that the Apostle Paul had, had abandoned them, he was willing to say, John Mark abandoned us. He was willing to be frank and blunt about it. In Acts 15, perhaps probably the most blunt time that we see the Apostle Paul confront someone is in Galatians 2.11 with Peter when he was refusing to eat with Gentiles. And, and he says this in, in Galatians 2.11. He says, but when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face for what he did was very wrong. <laughs> Truth, brothers and sisters, without love is harsh. Love without truth is harsh. We, we need to be people who do this truth and love thing very, very well. And that's the fodder for healthy relationships. I promise you that my wife, Allie, is the person in my life that can be the greatest source of encouragement for me because she knows me. She, she knows how to speak truth and love into my life. And, and I suppose that is vice versa in my relationship with her, that we strive to be people who don't ignore the hard conversations, but do so in a way that's, that's loving. And, and often it requires patience. I, I promise you, anybody who's in any relationship with me, if you haven't figured this out already, it requires patience. I promise you that. And, and relationships, I think, even when God designs them, often require, uh, especially healthy ones, they require patience. You remember in Colossians, we talked about this earlier in 3, 12 through 14, where it says, put up with one another. It says, be patient with one another. There's a component of this that I think he just knows us well. And I love here in verse 10, the mentioning of John Mark, that here now we see the name John Mark again in verse 10. And there's a component of this restoration of John Mark that this is a beautiful example of a man who certainly was in conflict, or at least at some level, the Apostle Paul had said that he was somebody who had given up the fight. And now he's just mentioned here by name. And then finally, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, we hear this about the, the Apostle Paul's description of John Mark. He says, he says this, he says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. So if at the beginning of this, it, with his encounter with John Mark, if he was just, I'm done with him, he's failed me, he's disappointed me, he's discouraged me, which we do really well, don't we? That I've given up on that person, I'm done with them. 
What he ends up doing is that he maintains relationship with him and ultimately at the end of their pastoral ministry together, that there's a description of their relationship as being one very useful for ministry. There's, there's this, this component of this that, that I think is work. It's tough. It's not easy, but it's worth it. Can you agree with me on this? That relationships, when they're invested into, that they have the potential of being a tremendous encouragement to us. A second larger point this morning is that there's great strength that comes from unity amidst diversity. Paul modeled the belief in the unification that comes from the cross, that he uses that very language of brother and sister. And what helps me when I see this in verse 11, look with me there. He says, and Jesus, who's called justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers. He's saying that they're, they're Jews for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. So there's three Jews, three Gentiles that were involved in this. Sounds like a bad joke, but what, what, what ends up happening in this process is that Paul does not ignore the ethnic diversity that is in the church. In fact, he, he mentions it, he embraces it, and he understands it as an opportunity for the church to be stronger together. Paul did not ignore cultural barriers. He did not ignore ethnic barriers. He understood them and embraced them as strengths within the body of Christ. I love this description by Edward Markham about the Lord Jesus Christ. That He says, some people draw a circle that, that allows them to have people who are outside of their relational sphere that they, they decide by eth for ethical, ethnical, I'm sorry, for racial division or financial division, that they say, you're not in this. You're not in my circle. But what the Lord Jesus Christ did when he came to seek and to save that which was lost is that he drew a circle and then he invited individuals into that circle. I like that image. And I think that that's the image that I'm trying to challenge us to be. When we stick those yard signs in our yard and we say, join us, I get that that's risky, right? Because for one, you're probably gonna have to mow your lawn a little better than you normally do. And for two, you might have to be a little nicer than normal. I, I, one of my, my pastor friends in California, he was like the nicest guy you ever meet. He's like Jim Garber, right? And um, you guys agree with me, nicest guy you've ever met. And he was a pastor on staff with me and, and I went over to his house. His daughter was in my youth group and uh, we were picking up a bunch of students and on his garage door, somebody had spray painted hater on the cross. Of his now this is a guy who, who was, was, was tremendously kind and gracious, but someone had heard that he was a pastor and they'd heard this and they just assumed so much about him that was dead wrong, right? And I, I understand when we talk about putting out a sign that says, join us, or when we talk about saying, hey, I'm going to invite people into my life, that we're putting ourselves at some level at risk, but there's a component of this that it's totally worth the cost. The, an, another unifier that I see that's pretty clear in Colossians 4.12 is in the exhortation for Epaphras. And that is that prayer is a powerful unifier. We've been seeing this on our Wednesday night prayer meetings that we, when we pray together, there's a component of this that's really encouraging to me. It's really challenging me. Uh, but he says this in verse 12, Epaphras who is one of you. Now remember Epaphras, we talked about him earlier in the book of Colossians. He was the pastor of the church in Colossae, more than likely. He was someone who was fighting hard for them. The apostle Paul's gonna affirm him in ways that he doesn't affirm other people, where he's gonna say, this guy's a prayer warrior. This guy takes prayer extremely seriously. Epaphras 
who is one of you? And then he affirms him, a servant of Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus greets you. He's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Epaphras understood the power of prayer. The apostle Paul affirms it in him. He was their pastor and he committed himself to taking seriously the contention for that church in such a way that we know that he went to um, where the apostle Paul was in order to share with him his concerns about his church. And there's a component of this that, that as he's interacting with the apostle Paul, that there's a component of this that, that he seems to have understood that prayer is the foundation of everything that will stand. I like the way W.H. Griffith Thomas puts it. Um, he says this, there are many things outside the power of ordinary Christian people and great position, wide influence, outstanding ability may be lacking to almost all of us. But the humblest and least significant Christian can pray. And as prayer moves the hand that moves the world, perhaps the greatest power we can exert is that which comes through prayer. The Apostle Paul understands the value of prayer, and here he affirms the prayer warrior, Epaphras. He affirms him as being a man who understood what it means to be in a battle. He also is a man who understood that relationships come at a personal cost. I, I like the way that he describes him in verse 13. He says, Epaphras again, he's still talking about him. He says, for I bear him witness. In other words, I, I declare to you, this is the truth, that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. That he describes this in such a way that, that he says, the guy's worked hard for you. He's taken it seriously. He's done his job. He's, he understands what it means to invest in this church. You know what's amazing today in the church in Cuba? That I, I have had the privilege with the Christian and Missionary Alliance to work with some of the leaders that are overseeing the work that God's doing in Cuba. And to this day, there is a really unique opportunity in Cuba where individuals, you, you cannot build a church building in Cuba legally, but what you can do is you can take your house and you can turn it into a church. So, um, so we're going to sell this building and we're going to ask you all to, to let us all meet at your home next week. Are you guys in? Who's in? Two of you? None of you? All right. Okay. And you have to provide lunch for everybody too, right? <laughs> In the, in the next, okay, you guys are in. All right, that's good. We'll sign the contract afterwards. That sounds good. In the next few verses, it describes Demas as being a woman who had a church that was meeting in her home. And I, I can't even imagine what that would have meant for her, what that would have meant for their, in this, this growing church, that this is in, not just in their backyard, but this is their home. Verse 14 says this, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read into the church the Laodicea is and see also that you read the letter from Laodicea. So Nympha was a, was a woman who hosted a church in her home. And I, I suppose that, that even as we read this again, going back to the Apostle Paul, that, that he could have been a man who was hardened by the pain of his life experience. But instead, what he was was a man who allowed people into his life. And I suppose that for some of us in the room, the reason why we're so hesitant to risk relationships is the potential for pain, the reality of past pain. And, and I 
believe that what the Lord is asking of us in the truth of God's word across the board is that he's saying to us, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. We know that Epaphras and Paul knew the pain and toil of ministry, but it didn't stop them from the joyful pursuit that God desired of them. That's my challenge for you today. Now, there's one last thing that shows up at the end of this book, and, and, and it's, it's intriguing to me that it kind of snuck in there, and that is a truth that we see from the story of the man Demas. So we, we see his name, and of all of the individuals that are described here, he's one of them that's just described by name. He's just Demas. And ultimately, what we know about Demas's story is that at some point, Demas is going to turn his back on his faith. He's going to give up. He's going to be a source of great pain. We're told in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, that Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. That's the Apostle Paul speaking. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. He's the only individual in this sec- section that's not commended in any way. We don't know when Demas would fall away, but we know that he would. And, and it's important for us, you guys remember that I had the privilege of serving as a marriage and family pastor at, um, at the church in Middleburg Heights at Grace. And, and what that means when you do marriage and families, you just work with a lot of families in crisis, a lot of individuals in crisis. And, and it's not just married people, it's single, like everybody has a family at some level. We, we realize that there's, there's a way for relationships to break down. But what shocked me in the trenches of working with families in crisis is that they were often not willing to accept that there's just sin in their life that was causing great division in their relationship. They're wrestling with how to fix something that all the while the pain of that thing that they're trying to fix was, was ongoing with the reality of sin that's being brought into a relationship. I, it is my conviction that sin always separates relationships. It separates our relationship with God. It separates our relationship with one another. In this case, Demas allowed his sin to separate him from people who I believe would have loved him unconditionally and supported him. It it is helpful for us to see as we come to conclusion that the Apostle Paul really understood, I think the way he lived his life, that, that true love, true relationships overcome barriers. They transcend grievances. They produce a largeness of heart. Through believing in Christ, you and I can have this fullness of fellowship. And the Lord offers it to all of us. We can have healthy relationships in our life, but it's going to come at a cost for us. It's going to require us to see our own relationships from a different perspective. And you know what God can do in the midst of, this is a really cool part of Louis Zamperini's story, is that he wasn't a believer yet, but he, while he was in Japan, in one of the, the crisis moments in his life, he was starving to death, like his body weight had gone, been cut in half from before the plane accident. And he's in his cell and has very limited interaction with people. And a man comes to his door and in broken English says, are you a Christian? That's what he says. That's the first words the guy says, are you a Christian? Now, Louis wasn't a believer at the time, but he was American. So he's like, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, right? And so he, he says, yes. Well, he finds out from broken English that this young man that's interacting with him is a guard at that prison who was, came to Christ through Canadian missionaries 
that were sent to Japan years before his parents came to Christ. And he now is a believer. And so he starts calling Louis his brother. Um, he sneaks him candy in there. He actually gets in a fight on his behalf, the way that the story goes. And you, you think of this, and there's so many things about it that I love. But what I, what I really appreciate about that story is, one, the character and heart of the God that I serve has never forsaken us, right? That he loves the person in Japan enough to send a Canadian couple to share the gospel to them. He loved Louis enough to have that man come and interact with him. And how beautiful is it that this young man, Kawamura is the, way, the, the name that he gives him, was a man who was willing to pursue him, even at risk of his own safety and protection, because he saw him as a brother. I don't know what what that sign is in your life. I really don't know. I, I've gotten to meet some of you. I've had the privilege of calling some of you friend in this room. But I want to challenge you. If you're closed off right now because of your circumstances, I want to remind you that there's a way to see that overcome. In Louis's case, it was through the blood of Christ. Actually, with the Apostle Paul's case, it was the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that everything changed through the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That can be your story. There's another component of this that for some of us, we've gotten ourselves so content with our little world that I believe that the Lord wants to do something with us. And he wants us to be people who say those simple words, join us. But what that means is that it's going to come at a cost. But if we do that, I believe ultimately God is going to be glorified in our lives I believe God is going to be glorified in our church. And I believe ultimately those who were lost are going to be found. Will you join me together? Bow your heads together with me. And will you pray whatever version of prayer that you want to pray on your own right now? Lord, would you open my heart? If it's, if it's calloused and hard, Lord, would you cut away those calluses? Like it, it says in in your word that you can take our hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh. Would you do that for us, especially those that are here in this room that, that I can relate to at different stages of my life that have said in their hearts, I can't do that again. It's too painful. It's too hard. Lord, would you work a miracle in our hearts to soften us to what you want to do in our lives? Would you allow us to be people who allow other people into our world? And I, I believe, Lord, in the midst of that, if we do that, that we're going to find ourselves like the Apostle Paul at the end of this letter, counting it a privilege to suffer for your namesake, and also to count it a privilege to be together with one another, to not have to go it alone. You're an awesome God. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.